Well, this is the final sermon this morning in a brief series that we've entitled Charismatic Controversy. The goal has been to kind of understand some of the more challenging to understand gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. As we've been making our way through 1 Corinthians, we got to chapter 12 through 14, preached an overview sermon on it, and then um, we stepped back and looked at the larger context in which 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 finds itself in terms of the Bible context. And the last two weeks, this week and last week, or last week and this week rather, we're, we've been focusing in on probably the two most controversial gifts that are talked about in 1 Corinthians 14, which is tongues and prophecy. It's Paul that gives most of his time to this particular issue in chapter 14 of all the gifts that he discusses. These are the two that he has um, most to say about in terms of the church at Corinth. So that's why we've paused and begun talking about these things. It's not because our church has a hobby horse for talking about controversial things or like to talk about the things that are most irrelevant in some ways to, uh, to daily life, but rather because we've confronted them in our, in our verse-by-verse walking through of 1 Corinthians and we need to deal with what's in front of us. Now, I just want to restate up front that... Our view, whatever our view may be, on prophecy or tongues, and whether you agree with my view or not, uh, whether prophecy last week or of tongues this week, um, tongues this morning, there are basically four views as I understand them. Two would be from the continuationist camp, and two would be from the cessationist camp. Now, just to remind you of what those two words mean, continuationist would be those who view the, the gifts as they were practiced, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 as abiding with or continuing with the church all the way to the second coming of Christ and should be expected to be observed, identified, and practiced in the church in this era, including the, the era of today. The cessationist group would see some of these gifts, especially those of a, more, of, of a more revelatory capacity, that is, they were designed to bring the word of God through a prophetic word, um, now that, that that prophetic word has been given finally and conclusively in Scripture, that gift of prophecy has largely ceased to function as it did in the early New Testament era. What about tongues, though? Well, in my view, there are, there are four, four views. Um, let me give you the continuationist ones first. First, tongues would be understood as an ecstatic private, largely, but can be public, form of prayer language that does not necessarily follow a discernible linguistic pattern. Ecstatic utterances is sometimes what they've been called. Prayer, private prayer language, you may have heard that kind of language. That's one view of tongues. A second view of tongues is that they are some form of angelic language, which means they would fit sort of the non-linguistic human language variety, but in alluding to 1 Corinthians 13, 1, they would be of that variety. Those would be the continuationist views of tongues. Although many Reformed continuationists also view, especially the tongues in Acts 2, as human languages. They would just make a distinction between the tongues in Acts 2 versus the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14, that those are different tongues. The tongues in Acts 2 are human languages, the tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 are not. What about cessationists? Well, the, the standard 
kind of traditional cessationist view of tongues is that they are miraculously given human languages that are previously unknown to the speaker. That is, the Holy Spirit sovereignly gave an unknown language to the human speaker that then spoke it. And they would say that's consistent with Acts 2 and 1 Corinthians 14, and we should have no difference for seeing the two. Now, I actually don't hold to the traditional view of tongues. That may surprise you. I haven't held it since seminary. Um, in fact, I think my view has largely not changed in 20 years, um, although I think it's been refined and strengthened. Um, I take somewhat of an alternative view to the, to the tongues of, of the cessationist view. So I, I, would, I would be comfortable saying that they're human languages. I'm uncomfortable saying that they're always miraculously given. And I'm going to explain that as we go. So what do I, how do I view tongues then? Well, let me go ahead and give you the way I view it and hopefully give you some biblical basis for that as we walk through it. Tongues are a human language which the speaker knows, but the congregation does not. Tongues are a human language that the speaker knows, that is a local dialect of some sort, but the congregation or the group does not. As a seaport city, a major one at that, Corinth, would have been in a constant influx of varied and mixed numbers of visitors and travelers and temporary residents, freedmen and slaves. And because of its particular geographical location and its commercial prosperity, the city of Corinth in Paul's time was a highly multilingual environment. This means that for many in Corinth, Greek was not their first or native language. Instead, they spoke a non-Greek language as their first or native language, and Greek was a second language for them. A church, then, tends to reflect its environment, especially its linguistic environment. And so it should not surprise you that we find Corinth to be a multilingual church. We would expect to see that in a city like Corinth. So the problem that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians 14 is that individual expression in native languages has taken priority over group edification in the common language. What the Corinthians need is unity in diversity in language. Just like their practice of the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, the unity of the church community at Corinth is threatened in its common worship by this multilingual reality of the city, which would bring it together, but there instead are different languages that are dividing those who should be united. Now, I want to answer four questions in this particular sermon. Here's the first one. Are tongues languages or utterances? Are tongues languages or utterances? Well, as I've already mentioned, a common position among many Christians and scholars is to view the tongues of Corinth as ecstatic utterances. That is, speaking spirit-given words, or kind of words, with no discernible code or linguistic pattern. These utterances would be non-cognitive, that is, they would not involve the mind, and they would be non-linguistic, that is, they're not taking the form of any known language. However, I believe that there are several reasons given 
in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 14, for why we should believe the tongues mentioned are intelligible languages, not unintelligible utterances. The regulations that Paul lays down, I'll, I'll give you five of them. See if they're convincing to you. First of all, look at 1 Corinthians 14, 27 and 28. Paul writes, If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. The regulations that Paul lays down here presuppose that the tongue speaker is completely in control of his utterances. Second, look at 1 Corinthians 12, 10. 1 Corinthians 12. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Some have said that the various kind of tongues can be alluding to all sorts of things. They can be linguistic things, non-linguistic things, discernible human languages, non-discernible languages. But if tongues are not languages of any kind and have no cognitive structure, how can they be differentiated into types and cases and different classes? Differentiation in particular into individual particular tongues seems to imply some sort of form to them. Otherwise, they can't be classified. Third, and those are the weaker, I'm, I'm trying to build the stronger arguments. Those are admittedly a little bit weaker arguments. Third, notice that Paul specifically identifies tongues with foreign languages in verse 10 and 11. Otherwise, his illustration doesn't make sense. Verse 10, therefore, sorry, I got the right chapter here. Therefore, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. I think that is exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 14. And that's why he alludes to it. He's talking about foreign languages that are not understood by most of the congregation. And he, atip, tip, he, he basically strictly limits it to that idea. We'll see more of that to come. Fourth, the tongues of 1 Corinthians 14 involve... According to verse 15, the lyrics of songs and expressions of prayer, praise, and giving thanks. So they must involve words of some kind. In 1 Corinthians 14, 19, the reference to countless words in a tongue is clearly a reference to a language of some, of some kind. Paul says, I would, I, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Finally, when Paul quotes... Isaiah 28, in verses 21 and 22, it should be noted that, that the Old Testament context is a foreign language, not an ecstatic utterance. Notice verses 21 and 22. Paul quoting Isaiah 28 in the law, it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Paul's choice of words, other tongues, there... He's referring to human languages in Isaiah 28, languages of foreigners that the people would not understand. If human language aren't in view, the quotation is meaningless. Now, some scholars believe, and I'd say most traditional scholars who are of a cessationist persuasion, believe that a language miracle was occurring in which the speaker was speaking a human language that he had never learned before and did not know or understand. 
and they often appeal to Acts 2 to demonstrate that these, these languages were miraculously given. Would you turn back with me to Acts chapter 2? We're going to spend just a few moments in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, the Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. All right. So when the Jews heard the apostles speaking in tongues at at Pentecost, they heard known languages. That's clear. Each one was hearing the apostles speak in their own language. People from all over the world were gathered at Pentecost. It was a multilingual sort of celebration. Now, what was unique is that the apostles were, by the utterance of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming the mighty works of God. We read this in verse 11. Look down at verse 11. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, I think, explain what those mighty works of God are all about. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, Joel 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your young men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, what is going on here? What is the miraculous element That is taking place. Is the miraculous element languages or is the miraculous element prophecy? Well, while I wouldn't want to quibble with brothers who see this differently, I think that the predominant emphasis of the miraculous activity of the Holy Spirit in this chapter is his giving the ability to prophesy, according to Joel chapter 2. And so the miraculous element is not the tongue speaking per se but the prophecy being done. They marveled at the people for not speaking Hebrew and prophesying in a different language, which they would expect to hear in a largely Jewish context. Some were amazed and others ridiculed that they would speak in a language other than Hebrew in order to prophesy about God. The Spirit was at work granting prophecy and boldness to declare the mighty works of God to the people who were present, which included prophecy by men and women, we're told. And then Peter stands up and gives a sermon interpreting all that's happening on the basis of Christ coming into the world. So this is a redemptive historical moment. 
The, the Spirit is being poured out. Prophecy is being expressed and given. And as a result of this, there, there, there is prophecy being given by people who are not technically Jewish. That would have been unheard of since God's prophecy was only confined to the Jewish people. And yet now we see, according to Joel 2, God pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. The next instance of tongues is in Acts chapter 10. Would you turn there? Some debate that there could be in Acts 8, and there probably is, but I'm not going to spend too much time. The house of Cornelius. I'm not going to read the entire text. It takes up most of the chapter. But if you remember, Cornelius and his household received the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in tongues. If you'll just look at verses 44 to 48. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. See, that's what causes people to be amazed. Not the tongues. It's the gift of the Holy Spirit manifested through prophecy being given to the Gentiles. The redemptive historical shift. For hearing and speaking languages, tongues, and God. Then Peter Who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now, what gift is he referring to? The gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what he says. So doesn't this, speak, doesn't this take a different angle on the, a traditional Pentecostal understanding of how one receives the Holy Spirit and how you can manifest that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit? Many Pentecostals through the last hundred years, at least, have advocated for a, a, a position of spirit baptism on the basis of Peter speaking in tongues and extolling God after he received the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't say anything about a miraculous impartation of a tongue. It says that he spoke in tongues, that he spoke in another language and declared the mighty works of God because he received the Holy Spirit. In other words, the emphasis is on what Cornelius did, not necessarily how he did it. Peter specifically tells us that this is the same gift as the one received at Pentecost, and when Cornelius and his friends speak in a tongue, they were probably praising God in prayer and song and thanksgiving for their salvation. Thus, the text does not require that they supernaturally learned a language they did not previously know. A third instance of tongue speaking in the book of Acts occurs among the Ephesians, Ephesians 12 in chapter 19. This will be the last text we look at in Ephesians, or uh, Acts. Turn to Acts chapter 19. Look at verses 1 to 7. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we've not even heard that there's a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That's Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on him, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now you see why, and, and it's a legitimate understanding, why it's been the dominant understanding in the, in the church that the speaking in tongues was a gift of the Holy Spirit. But again, I don't think the text necessitates that. It necessitates that prophecy would be a gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, 
but it doesn't necessitate that tongues, impart, that is impartation of an unknown language, be the gift of the Holy Spirit. The to- tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. I'm gonna, we're going to talk about that in 1 Corinthians 14. Well, what does that mean if it's a natively learned language? How can that be a gift of the Holy Spirit? I'll get there. But I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily have to conclude that. When Paul laid his hands on them, that's clear. That's the impartation of the Spirit. And they began prophesying. Again, that, I think, it's not, it's not mentioned in Acts 10 that that's what Cornelius is doing. But if it says, if, if, if Acts 11 says that Cornelius was doing the same thing that was happening in Acts 2, and Acts 19 says that what was happening in Acts 2, same as happening in Acts 19, then I think the prominent emphasis is prophecy. There's miracle, the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit prophesying by Gentiles. What does that say about the point of the book of Acts? Gospel's going global. Word of God's going out. That's the emphasis of the book of Acts. The mission is advancing beyond the walls of Jerusalem. And God is beginning to speak through people who were not his people. So, in neither situation is there a language barrier here, I think. When Paul goes to Ephesus, when he goes to Jerusalem, or when the, when the disciples are in Jerusalem, the apostles are in Jerusalem, or when Peter goes to Cornelius, they're all speaking commonly known languages, all present when the languages are spoken are believers, so the languages don't serve an evangelistic purpose. The languages were also not spoken for the purpose of private prayer, so an important lang- question would be, with what language would a new convert spontaneously begin to praise God? Their own language, their native tongue, which lines up what I believe well with 1 Corinthians 14, which means that language speakers were spontaneously praising God in the language with which, with which they were most familiar, that is their native or first language. So what are, then are we to conclude if... if if tongues are known languages in the book of Acts, and I'm going to make an argument that there are known languages in, the, in 1 Corinthians, what does that say about ecstatic utterances, people who practice them or do them? Does that mean they're demonic? No, of course not. Then what are they? I don't know. I don't know. The Bible doesn't talk about them. J.I. Packer has posed the best, um, the best answer from a cessationist perspective, which would be their form of psychological relaxation. They help people in prayer some ways, in a psychological, relaxing kind of way. So secondly, are tongues angelic or human? Are tongues angelic or human? Now, some have suggested that the gift of tongues includes also an angelic language that's not known to human beings. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians and look back at 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, does that mean that there is a language of angels that men have access to? Well, Paul engages in hyperbole in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 3. Paul begins with an actual ability or action, that is, speaking in tongues or speaking in the languages of men. That's a normal activity. That's another reason I think it's a normal human language that wasn't sovereignly given by God. If I speak in the tongues of men or 
of angels. That would be really extreme. But I have not love. I'm a noisy gong. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. See the hyperbole here? No prophecy. No prophet understands all mysteries and all knowledge. Otherwise, they'd be God himself. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, well, that's the extreme of sacrificial service. But I have not love. I gain nothing. So Paul's point is that if you take things even to the most extreme cases, but you don't have love, those things are worthless. So again, he's engaging in hyperbolic speech, and I think we need to be careful from drawing doctrine from hyperbole. He's clearly exaggerating when he's referring to the gift of prophecy, for no one who prophesies knows all mysteries and all knowledge. This is obviously hyperbolic, and the way he describes tongues is meant to be taken that way as well, I think. Therefore, I think the statement is not meant to be taken literally as though there is a tongue of angels that we can access. But rhetorically, that is, indicating that even if we did, even if we were able to speak in the tongues of angels, but we didn't have love, that would be worthless. Now, that tongues do not represent also a uniquely angelic language seems to also be confirmed in verse 8 of chapter 13. Look there. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, they will pass away. Now, tongues will cease at the second coming of Christ. But if tongues really are an angelic language, why would they ever end? As one writer commented, why would an ability in angelic languages be present with the church before the coming of Christ and then cease precisely when it would be most advantageous. Doesn't seem to follow, does it? Third, are tongues known or unknown? Are tongues known or unknown? And this is where we get into the, is this a supernatural impartation of a language or is this a language that was previously known? Doesn't chapter 14, verses 2 and 4, clearly indicate that the language is unknown to the speaker, either in terms of an ecstatic utterance or an unknown human language. Look at verse 2 of chapter 14. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the Spirit. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Paul says that we utter mysteries when we speak in tongues, and that we do not speak to men but to God. But the reason that we utter mysteries is because, according to verse 2, no one understands what we're saying. That's why we utter mysteries. The reason that we speak only to God is because men can't understand us. Only God can. Men can't understand the language that we're using. Only God does, because no one present there understands it. We can now see the state of the nature of the language problem in Corinth. Corinth, as I already mentioned, was a highly multilingual city, in which people would sometimes speak out in the Corinthian church service, worshiping God in their native dialect with which they were most familiar, their native language, their first language, their language of the heart, their local dialect, and without translation. And I think this explanation fits the multilingual setting of Corinth, explains why the language speaker is, 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 a, is using a problem language to worship God, and explains how the language speaker can be edified even when the language is not translated. What about verse 13, though? Look at verse 13. 
Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Paul states that the speaker must pray in order to translate what they are saying. But if translation is a supernatural ability that the language speaker or others with this supernatural ability could practice, then the situation of 1 Corinthians 14, 28 never would have happened. Look at verse 28. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So either the language speaker would translate or one of the supernaturally gifted translators could translate, but in the fact, the situation of 1428 could arise according to Paul. So how do we explain that? I'll get back to that a little bit later. We are not to assume from verse 13 that language speaking and translation were supernatural abilities practiced by members of the Corinthian church simply because Paul tells them to pray. Okay? Just because Paul says, if you speak in a tongue, pray that you will interpret, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily supernaturally given. Not all the manifestations of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 are miraculous abilities, are they? Administration, helps, ser- various kinds of service. Those, aren't, those are ordinary activities, and yet he says, manifestations of the Spirit at work among the people of God. In fact, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, something can be a manifestation of the Spirit and not be a miraculous ability. This leads to an important conclusion. If some of the manifestations of the Spirit, that is spiritual gifts, are not miraculous abilities, but natural abilities owned and fruitful under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, then abilities in multiple languages and the translation of multiple languages is a gift of the Holy Spirit for the church. You better believe it. We lean into it every single module in Serbia, don't we, Duane? that necessary gift of interpretation and translation owned of the Holy Spirit. So I'm saying that if abilities in multiple languages and translations into multiple languages could be non-miraculous manifestation of the Holy Spirit, then we should see it as a spiritual gift. We should not be surprised that in multilingual places places like Corinth, of all places, one of the most diverse and cosmopolitan linguistic environments in the history of the early world, Paul would consider those with natural abilities and languages and translation to be essential people in the local church. While I would maintain that these particular abilities were not miraculous, I do not nevertheless believe that miraculous abilities weren't also present. Prophecy, healings workings of divine power. They were all there. So what does Paul say here then? If the tongue speaker understands and knows the language, why does Paul tell him to ask God to help in translating his own language? Well, ask someone who knows multiple languages or dialects if they ever need to pray to ask God to help them make their words clear and intelligible to somebody who doesn't understand it. They will pray. They ask the Lord to help them. Wouldn't it make sense for Paul to tell the language speaker to ask God for help in translating into Greek? His second language? One that may or may not be known nearly as well as they know their native language? What about verse 14? For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. That seems to be clearly pointing in the direction opposite of what I'm arguing, doesn't it? I think it does on the surface. But Paul says... 
that if he should speak in a language without translation, my spirit prays, he says, but my mind is unfruitful. But what, is, what does unfruitful mean? Does it mean ununderstood? That is, that's not, personal understanding is not the context. 1 Corinthians 14, everybody understands what they are saying. Nobody else does. So his point is, if I don't translate, it will be unfruitful for others. It will not edify them. The whole emphasis of 1 Corinthians 14 is the effect of the, upon the hearers of untranslated languages. 14.14 14 should be taken as my spirit prays, but my mind does not produce fruit in others. Paul says that should he speak in one of these non-Greek languages without translation, his spirit would be praying. That would be, he would be praying from his own heart in a language he completely understands, but his mind will not be producing fruit in others that they will be edified by the speech that is intelligible to them. Verse 15, what am I to do, Paul says? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll also pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit. I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone say amen? Paul is saying that all worship activities should be done from the spirit. They're all from the heart. And they're all to be done intelligibly with the mind. And then Paul shifts to another negative example in verses 16 and 17, where he says... How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. So if someone praises God from the heart, that is with the spirit, unintelligibly, that is without the mind, the one occupying the place of the unlearned, that is the person not knowing the particular language, cannot even assent to the prayer of the language speaker. How are they going to say amen? Paul says the language speaker may give thanks well, but because the language is unintelligible to the other person, that individual is not edified, is not built up. Paul wants, when the word of God to be preached, he wants people to say, amen, because they understand it in their own language. So I believe tongues are known, not unknown in that sense. Fourth, and finally, are tongues useful or helpful? Or unhelpful, sorry. Are tongues useful or unhelpful? In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is speak, seeking to reconcile two, what I see as two competing values. On the one hand, everything must be done in such a way that the benefit of the group is maintained. Right? He says it over and over again. Verse 12, seek to build up the church. Verse 26, let all things be done for edification. Yet on the other hand, Paul wants people whose native languages are not Greek to be able to freely worship God in the language most familiar to them as long as there's translation. And this explains why Paul would say, on the other hand, I want you all to speak in tongues, verse 5. Do not forbid speaking in tongues, verse 39. He wants other languages to be welcome in the church. He doesn't want the other people to be shuffled off to Greek class until they can learn to join the worship service. He wants them to be there and to be permitted to have those tongues present as long as there is translation being given for those tongues. It should be noted that in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, verse 13, and verse 27, Paul tells the language speakers to translate their own languages. He says, unless he translates in verse 5, 
that he may translate in verse 13. Let two or three at most and let one of them translate, verse 27. And then in verse 28, Paul says that in a situation in which there is no translator, the language speaker should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Why? So no one will understand what they're saying if there's no one to interpret what they're saying, including the person speaking. So if they only know that language and they don't know Greek well enough to translate it, don't say it. But if they do, or someone else in the church does, speak it. Now, if speaking in tongues or speaking in languages and translation were miraculous, as some say, then the situation described in 1 Corinthians 14, 28 could never occur. Are we really to give or to believe that the Spirit gives the tongue speaker a supernatural ability to speak a language that they do not know, and yet the Spirit does not provide the church with someone able to interpret the tongue which the Spirit just uttered. How does that reflect on a God of decency and order? That's the problem for the traditional cessationist argument, one of them, that God would actually supernaturally provide a language to the congregation that he would not supernaturally provide an interpretation for. And I can't see that in the Bible at all. So, this, I believe, explains the relationship between verse 13 and verse 28. If the language speaker is competent to translate his language into Greek, he should do so, or one of the translators who knows both the language of Greek and the language the speaker is speaking ought to translate. And if none of the translators present, present knows the particular language, and if the language speaker engages in a local language and he's not very familiar with Greek, he should keep silent in the church. Keep that particular language out of the service for the sake of the group. Now, just a quick word since we're on the subject of silence, and this is a debated passage. Look down at verse 33 to 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything to desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, is Paul forbidding all speech acts of women in the church? I don't think so. 1 Timothy 2 doesn't forbid it, and 1 Corinthians 11 doesn't forbid it. 1 Corinthians 11 assumes that women are praying and prophesying in the assembly. So what does Paul mean here by silence regarding women? Well, remember when we talked several weeks ago about male and female genders in the church, that the, the role of authoritative teaching is to be reserved for men in the, in the congregation. That's what I think 1 Timothy 2 teaches. And I think Paul is calling for silence in that regard here because in the context, prophecies are being weighed. The prophet is prophesying and they're being evaluated for whether they're a true prophecy or a false prophecy. And the prophets are prophesying these things and therefore it's the responsibility of the prophets here to weigh and the church to weigh those things. And so I think Paul is forbidding women from weighing prophecy as, an, as, a, as a function of church leadership and assessing an, an authoritative function of the Word of God. It's not a universal silence that he is prohibiting. We could say more about that, but I need to move on. Now, here's the point. Paul advocates everything that he's telling the church at Corinth to do regarding native languages, and the main dialect of Greek, and how they're to function in the local church, 
he, he does it just like he does in the, the entire letter. He says, this is what I do. This is what I do. Now look at verses 18 and 19. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. You better believe that guy knows a lot of languages. He's a Gentile missionary. Tra- trained in the best schools. He knows a lot of languages. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. Remember, five words that are intelligible to you. That's what mind means here. In order to instruct others, then 10,000 words in a tongue that you don't understand. So, although he engages in multiple languages in his missionary ministry outside of the church, in the church, I'd rather speak five intelligible words in their language. He's not referring to private prayer here but to his public ministry with various linguistic groups encountered in connection with his missionary travels. Paul speaks in more dialects and more languages than all the Corinthians because being a missionary to the Gentiles would have required it. We get a glimpse of his linguistic fluency in the book of Acts. In Acts 21 and 22, he speaks to a Judean crowd in Aramaic at first, and then when the crowd becomes hostile, he switches over to Greek and speaks to a Roman in Acts 21-37, And then in Acts 21.40, to establish himself as a Judean, he speaks in Hebrew. That's three languages, at minimum. That's more than these Corinthians probably know, I would think. So Paul, as a cross-cultural missionary to the Gentiles, is thankful for this linguistic ability that the Spirit owns and emboldens, and he has the gift of tongues. And yet, in the Corinthian church meeting, Paul would rather speak five intelligible words than innumerable countless words in a language without his mind, or unfruitfully, or unintelligibly. So Paul's concern, again, is with the edification of the church, which can occur only when speaking is intelligible. The mission's focus highlights the essence of what the gift of tongues was intended to accomplish, the clear communication of the gospel so that people can hear and people can be saved. Now, let me make some applications here before we conclude. What do we learn from all this? In a sense, I want to say the gift of tongues is alive and well. In the sense that it's not a revelatory gift. Now, the revelatory capacity has ceased. That accompanies tongues, prophecy, that has ceased. But tongues, as a non-sovereign non-miraculous impartation of a previously unknown language, if that is what it is, and I'm not being dogmatic about that, that's just my 20-year persuasion. (laughs) If that's what it is, then it's very much alive in the church in the sense that it it is the ability to learn other languages and use them in kingdom service. If it is a sovereignly imparted gift, that it's revelatory in nature, then yes, tongues would cease. But I'm just not persuaded that's entirely what it is in the Bible. And I think we have too little evidence to build the case that it's a sovereign impartation of a previously known language. I think that's a big jump to make based on the text that we read. There are assumptions that are read into the text that the text does not clearly say. So let me, let me make a some more applications. What's the goal? 1 Corinthians 14, does this still apply to us? Of course, of course it applies. Not in the exact same way. We're not, a, we're not, we're not multilingual Owensboro. Okay? We all speak American. Right? English. 
Southern, albeit. All right, we speak common language. But that's the point. That's why this church can be edified. Do I believe in the superiority of prophecy to tongues in 1 Corinthians 14? You better believe it. Superiority? Prophecy. God's word given to God's people through God's prophets. Word of God central to the life of the church. Gather together. Read the word. Sing the word. Pray the word. See the word. Preach the word. Every Sunday. We do it. But also there's other principles laid out in 1 Corinthians 14. The principle of intelligibility. You being able to understand what is going on here. For if an outsider were to come in and we were all speaking in Mandarin Chinese, they would think we were nuts. Okay, But because we're speaking English, they can get access to the gospel. They can be saved under the gospel. And we can be edified under the gospel because of intelligible communication. Language is important. Clear communication is important. Paul is so burdened that, that, that there be no hindrance to any prophecy being done in the church by the existence of multiple tongues. He wants all the prophecy, all the prophetic words to come that were coming. And if tongues gets in the way, they need to be quiet. That's his burden in 1 Corinthians 14, I think. And that's our burden. We want nothing to get in the way of the prophetic word of God. Pray for us. Pray for us as teachers. Pray for preachers and teachers in our church that we would be clear as we ought to speak, that it would be understandable, that even the hard, difficult concepts would be brought down to a level that most of us can grasp with a little bit of thought and maybe a second listen of the sermon <laughs> on more challenging ones like this one. What about another one? What about edification? What about building up the body? What about serving, using our gifts to build up the body? Absolutely, it's important. What about evangelism? That all plays in. What about decency and order and love? Those are the main emphases. Those are the things that tongues and prophecy are meant to serve. Love and decency and order and edification and intelligibility and access to prophecy. And I would argue that all those things are present in our congregation by the Holy Spirit and are continuing to build up the local church here and everywhere around the world. Now, how does all this connect to the gospel? Well, there's a couple different ways we could handle that, but I want to propose one. Remember Genesis chapter 11, where the Tower of Babel is built? The people attempt to build a tower as a forced unity that's created by fear that they're going to be dispersed across the face of the earth. Certainly we're told that they wanted to make a name for themselves and they were going to build this high tower, but God dispersed them over the face of the earth and frustrated their plans. Now why did God frustrate their plans? Because they were disobeying his command to spread. Right? So he mixed up their languages so they couldn't understand each other. And they had to, go, they had to group together and go live off in different places. Oh, the Lord's wisdom. So fear caused them to rebel against God. God entered, brought human language, various tongues, into existence, and people were dispersed and separated from each other all across the world. And instead of being representative of God throughout the world, those at Babel wanted to be God in a singular place. 
And therefore, God curses the people at Babel with many languages so that their work ends. But yet at Pentecost, we have Babel overcome. Because at Pentecost, each hears in his own language, not in one common language, not in some universal language, but each person hears in their native tongue. And they're all listed in Acts chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. Each person, whether they're Parthian or Mede or Elamite or Mesopotamian or Judean or Cappadocian or Pontus or Asia or Phrygia or Pamphylia or Egyptian, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes and Cretans and Arabians, are hearing the mighty works of God in their own language. And it's at Pentecost that the divisions that are caused by our fallen fear are overcome. And in the preaching of the gospel made possible at Pentecost, cultural diversity is affirmed even while sinful divisions are overcome. The gospel is for all people and all nations. Not so each of these can turn into some generic humanity that's just segmented off to themselves, but so that they could express the human blessing and mandate to fill and multiply across the whole earth. And so that in the end, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will bow and worship the Lamb. That's what tongues has to do with the gospel. And praise the Lord that here we see, out of many, God making one. In this messy, cosmopolitan, bilingual church at Corinth, God is bringing many people from many different walks of life and many different languages into one body. And it's all because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you a part of that body? If not, repent of your sins and come on in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the forward progress of the gospel. Thank you for the good news of Pentecost and the pouring out of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that the Spirit was given and prophecy was given about the coming and, and reigning and, and second coming and work and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And people were cut to the heart. And the first church was born that day. People from all tribes and tongues and languages met in Jerusalem. And from there the gospel went out to the Gentile world. First Judea and then Samaria and then the uttermost parts of the earth. Even Owensboro, Kentucky. Even us right here or wherever the gospel found us. Thank you for the gift of tongues. Thank you for the gift of prophecy. Thank you for... So, the Spirit's work in being able to translate this book of prophecy into English so that we can read it. Thank you for Tyndale and all that he did dying to get this book into the English of his day. And we know many of your people all around the world who have this gift have worked diligently to translate your word over and over and over again. And it remains in need to this day. Lord, would you see to it that the gospel goes worldwide, that every tongue that does not have your word would have it. Oh God, save your people, build your church, glorify your name. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand together and sing. Let's worship.